Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, your co-host. We've got a special episode for you today with Ryan Mack and Craig Silverman. They both write for BuzzFeed News, and over the course of the year leading up to the elections, they wrote about how Facebook was handling misinformation and the consequences of some of those decisions, which culminated in the Capitol riots in January. Uh, The series won the 2020 George Polk Award for Business Reporting. So here it is, my interview with Ryan Mack and Craig Silverman. Welcome, uh, Ryan Mack and Craig Silverman. Uh, Congratulations on your Polk. Thank you. Thank you. How did you both originally come to be reporting on Facebook together? It's it's been weird because... Craig and I are really not dedicated Facebook beat reporters. I kind of cover corporate accountability for tech companies for our, our tech desk at BuzzFeed. Craig, what do you what do you do exactly? <laughs> what do I do? Uh, I mean, my title is media editor, but it's that was the title that I was given because it's the most close approximation that we could think of years ago. I mean, I've, uh, I have been in a lot of ways kind of been a media reporter, but really reporting on like our information ecosystem and how it is manipulated and abused. And I don't think you can dig into that and dig into disinformation without, of course, bumping up against Facebook. And so I think we've, we've been coming at it from different angles. And it just happened that last summer, we happened to converge on it and kind of team up for a bunch of stories that started really with stuff that Ryan had been gathering a lot from inside the company and putting a lot of that together with what's happening on the platform and, and outside the company. And for those that don't know, Craig is the guy that coined the term fake news. Like literally Oh God. Got found the Macedonian teens, coined the term and then it went from there and thanks Craig for the last four years or whatever. Yep. You uh, welcome everybody. <laughs> Donald Trump. Donald Trump has kind of taken that term. It's kind of his now. Yeah. I gift it to him and don't want anything to do with it anymore. But for the record, when I started using it in 2014, I actually had a definition and there was a reason for it, but nobody cares about that now. So thinking back on that period, uh, summer uh, of last year, it's not coincidental that there's an election coming uh, about six months down the line. How were you both looking at this story in that sort of uh, six-month ticking shot clock uh, kind of way? And how did you decide to sort of organize your reporting on it um, as as these articles came out? It's kind of a kind of a lot of articles you guys <laughs> wrote during this period. Yeah, we did a lot. I think we like looked back on it. And we're like, holy crap, we've written a lot of stuff. Um, but I would actually point to like 2018 as like the beginning of like BuzzFeed's 
very critical reporting into Facebook. That year, there was the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which was kind of a turning point for the company. And we did a lot of critical reporting around that time. Last year, 2020, we kind of picked it up around uh, the time, like May or June. There's a lot of kind of civil unrest with the George Floyd protests. And Donald Trump makes a, a post on Facebook um, saying something to the extent of when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And Facebook let that post uh, continue to exist on its platform. And that just pissed a lot of its employees off. I've never seen anything like that. And it led to an internal walkout, like a virtual walkout. There was no one actually in the office. So people like stopped working for a day. And it led to a lot of people wanting to talk. And so we used that, Craig and I, to our advantage in trying to find and source people within the company who are just kind of disgruntled. There, there's been a lot that's been built up over the last two and a half years and people just wanted an outlet. And so they started talking. And I mean, the, the context is that Facebook has been a very tough company to report on for a long time because employees are really happy and their stock options are amazing and the amenities and the benefits are all amazing. And people were in general sort of happy. And, and yes, since about 2016, some of that happiness and their view of what Facebook's role in the world is has really started to change. Um, but then, you know, the, the unhappiness with its positions around, you know, threats of violence uh, from the president and issues around social justice bubble up in the company. And because everyone's working from home, suddenly people feel a lot more comfortable, frankly, talking to journalists and sharing information with journalists. You know, suddenly people wanted to talk. It was easier for them to talk. And there was a lot to talk about, as you say, because, you know, the election was coming up. And for me, I've always been very focused on like the disinformation side of it and the manipulation of what's happening on the platform. And so, you know, was certainly expecting a very busy period, but wasn't necessarily expecting people inside Facebook to really actually be speaking loudly and putting a lot of pressure on leadership. Like that wasn't something I was predicting when we when we were looking at the early part of 2020 and what might happen during the election. As these articles came out, did you start to perceive any kind of a feedback loop insofar as the management at Facebook became aware that people were leaking and were therefore able to more or less perceive what those employees thought through the intermediary of a BuzzFeed article? Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about operating out in the open in this way and and. Uh, how it changed the story, knowing that that people at Facebook were clearly reading these stories. It's it's kind of surreal because Facebook has this thing called Workplace, and it's an internal Facebook for employees only, and so you can see like people discussing things openly. It's like posting on like a forum or whatever, um, and there's groups and channels and all this other stuff, and there's one for media requests. And like if if an employee gets like a media request. They like they're trained so well that they flag it internally. They're like, "Watch out! Um, this person is is trying to communicate with us. Just want to make everyone aware." And so, like, I would see that for Craig's like LinkedIn messages to employees, <laughs> and I was like, "Craig, maybe we shouldn't talk to that person because uh, I think they're like they're not going to be amenable, and they're already flagging it internally." But yeah, I mean, it, we have made a living off of kind of monitoring what happens on workplace, watching these conversations happen where. Facebook has this kind of very open culture. They like discussing things openly. They like arguing. They like debating things. And sometimes that leads to things being exposed um, that we can report on. And so we see the internal chatter when our stories go up. We see the internal chatter when something bad happens and there's an internal kind of 
backlash to it. To your point earlier about like morale dropping, we were reporting at one point on these things called pulse surveys. And so Facebook like loves its data. And so they survey their own employees pretty regularly about like how they feel about the company. And one of the questions is like, do you feel like Facebook is, is good for the world? And right after that looting and shooting post from Donald Trump, we saw that drop from like around 75, 80% to like just over 50%, like a severe drop. And so like we were getting all these signals and we could see all this chatter and it was like access that we've never seen before at a company. It's pretty amazing. And they seem to start altering stuff internally at Facebook. Like it became clear to them at a certain point that we were able to listen pretty much in real time to the all regular all hands meetings that executives would lead. I mean, Ryan would live tweet them at times. <laughs> and so... So they, it felt to me, I don't know what you think, Ryan, but it felt to me like they, these events, which were already kind of corporate type events internally, but they felt like they became even more scripted and even more engineered with the expectation that they were going to leak. And it's almost like Facebook corporate tried to start speaking through internal meetings with the expectation that they were going to leak. Um, and in some cases, you know, there was kind of this flywheel thing of like, yeah, the more stories that you publish, where you know you clearly have internal sources, the more sources who are willing to talk, or you know who actually might you know disagree with something that was in a story and maybe want to reach out to sort of talk about that, um, and so it can sort of start building on itself and get its own momentum. And then if you think about all the stuff that happened in the summer, I mean, there was George Floyd stuff, there was uh, Kenosha, and the the pace of the news and so much of it, Facebook had a role meant that these stories sort of you know they had a level of importance about what was going on in the world. We talk about the American uh, checks and balances on how big companies can get. And there was an era of breaking up monopolies. We now talk about big tech regulation. It seems in a certain way that part of what you're reporting on is this other check and balance on a, a company reaching a certain scale, which is that at that scale, its employees uh, no longer have the same ideological uh, loyalty to the company and, in fact, may make public what's going on internally within the company. Looking forward, like, where do you see this going? W where does this relationship between Facebook, its employees, and reporters go now that things are sort of being played with the cards up? It's a good question. I mean, I think, like, in the past, Facebook has kind of built this insular community where people were very happy. They believed that the company had a mission to connect the world and make it a better place. And the company has always been like relatively large, but now you have like 50,000, 55,000 people that work there. Not all of them are, are bought into this mission. They've been at home for a year working from home. They don't see their colleagues. And so that kind of facade is, is shattering a little bit for them. And Maybe they're still in their job because they can't afford to to leave that paycheck. And so they're keeping this job, but they also want to like maybe try and make a difference in a different kind of way and maybe talking to a reporter. That being said, there's still a lot of people at that company that love working for that company that will defend it no matter basically what happens. You, the internal chatter there is pretty diverse and you get a, a wide range of opinions. But there is a subset of people there that now 
feel like they have to talk to reporters um, to get stuff out there. And the sense of mission and unity that was once there has fractured. So they're so big that there's no way for it to be as kind of quiet as it used to be. And like Ryan said, I mean, there's a certain percentage of people who are still real true believers. There are some people who are there who look around and they see, I work with good people. I work with smart people. I think we can tackle these problems. I want to be part of tackling these problems. And then you have other folks who are just who have become really disillusioned and on their way out the door, maybe they want to talk to some reporters. And, you know, frankly, like Facebook takes PR and publicity really seriously. I mean, especially if there's something that makes Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg look bad, they are not happy with that. And so I think their comms team and their executives are struggling to kind of deal with this this new reality where before they've been dealing with bad press for about three plus years. Now it's like there's more internal dissent and more leaks coming. And I think that's a new thing that they're trying to wrap their arms around and figure out how do we handle this and deal with an employee base that is maybe not as happy as it used to be in in terms of those overall metrics. Thinking about that story, you have a lot of these sources at the employee level, and then you have these decisions that are getting made at the top levels. I'm curious in this reporting, how did you come to understand what motivations led to decisions at the top level and how much insight do you feel like you have into like the actual calls that resulted in a lot of this employee unhappiness so like craig said earlier we have these this view into the executive q a's that are held pretty much every week Mm. where they're basically talking to their employees it's like usually mark zuckerberg going out there or like a, a vp um, and explaining certain things. They are able to ask questions too. Um, and sometimes the questions are like, when are we coming back to the office? But other times they're like, why didn't we enforce on QAnon a lot earlier than we did? You know, Other times, like we've had documentation of executive decisions. We had this story over the summer about the influence of Facebook's vice president of public policy, this guy named Joel Kaplan. And Facebook has these rules about fact-checking and, and what can and can't be published in terms of misinformation. And so what happened was there were these right-wing outlets like Prager University being one of them that published um, basically climate denial misinformation that was then fact-checked by one of Facebook's third-party partners. Usually those kind of decisions come with penalties. So usually you can't advertise if, if that happens. Your distribution is limited in those cases. But in this case, we had actual documentation of uh, Vice President Joel Kaplan basically intervening and saying, look, we need to review this this strike, uh, maybe possibly get it removed. And you could see in this case, like clear political intervention from a Facebook executive to kind of decrease or, or remove the penalties for violating rules. And I think that was just like pretty eye opening for us. Like we'd never seen anything like that before. But, I mean, that's the kind of level of insight we had into executive decision-making. Yeah, I mean, the other, the other example is a recent story that we did uh, about a decision related to banning Alex Jones and Infowars, where, you know, we were able to establish kind of the chain that the whole decision took, where you had the teams actually responsible for gathering the evidence as part of their regular work. And they, they make a recommendation. And these are people who are hired for their expertise in this area and who actually write the policies. And it sort of snakes its way all the way up and it gets to Mark Zuckerberg, where he's just like, you know what, I, I know this is our policy, but I don't want to do it. And so, you know, that was a case where there were multiple sources 
who were who were basically confirming like this whole chain all the way up to Zuckerberg, and then Zuckerberg kicks it back down and says, "You guys got to rewrite the policy to something I'm happy with." And that, like Ryan said, I mean that's really eye opening when you think it's like the company. You can't centralize all the decisions for a company with a close to 3 billion users on it. And yet, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is the ultimate decider. He's the controlling shareholder. He's the guy. And he has decided to weigh in on so many of the questions around content moderation. You know, it's a pretty remarkable thing that a company with as much influence as they have is operating that way. And I think that's, to me, one of the biggest takeaways from all of the reporting. One is Facebook is too big that even when they say they're going to do something, they can't actually do it 100 percent because they're too big and they can't fully enforce. And so whatever their intent is, what the result is, is is going to be different. And then the second thing is that the decision making process is, you know, being heavily influenced by Concerns about politicization, concerns about political blowback, and just what, you know, a given executive like Mark in particular sort of feels about something regardless of what internal experts say. And that's a pretty crazy way to run a company with this much influence. So a lot of this stuff comes to a head in the weeks before the election, and you kind of might think that was it. And then it just sort of keeps going and going leading up to the Capitol riot. So where does the story stand now? Like how much of this organizing apparatus that sort of sprang up on Facebook through the election cycle, past the election cycle, has there been any action on it since the Capitol riots and sort of since, um, I guess you could say there were consequences for, for some of the actions? I mean, I think we're we're kind of trying to get a sense of that at the moment. In the kind of immediate aftermath of January 6th, Facebook actually tried to push off responsibility for that. If you remember, Sheryl Sandberg gave an interview to Reuters that was, I think, some kind of conference or something, and she said something to the extent of whatever happened on January 6th, Facebook was largely not responsible for it. It wasn't organized on our platforms, which is kind of an insane thing to say because reporters were literally finding that stuff like, by the hour. Like we have a colleague, Jane Lipinenko, who was finding these kind of stop the steal groups on Facebook that were organizing and like, and had organized and continue to organize even after Facebook supposedly banned them. And then you start to read these indictments that come out after the violence at the Capitol and you start to see like, oh, well, this guy, they were contacting each other on Facebook. Oh, these people met on Facebook groups. These other people, this person was recommended to this group by Facebook's algorithm. And that's how they found this militia group. And it's just like, you see all that and you and you look at the statement from Sheryl Sandberg and you're kind of like, why would you even go out there and say that? You know, it's kind of a insane thing to say. So I don't even know if Facebook is like fully reckoned with the responsibility here of what happened um, on January 6th. I mean, I think they want they, they feel like Biden winning. And yes, this thing happened on January 6th. But let's they just want to turn the page is kind of my sense, you know, since Trump's victory until, you know, post January 6th, Facebook feels like they've just been in everybody's sights. They feel like they've been unfairly maligned and blamed for everything. And they want to turn the page. There's a new administration. They're not going to have, you know, Trump in the position of power. And I think they want to get back to sort of being seen just more as like a big, you know, powerful company again, not the big powerful company with all this other baggage. Last question. I I wonder if you each could share a piece of advice for someone who wants to get into this reporting in this kind of an environment, a very large, historically secretive uh, company? Oh, man. 
I don't want to give away all our secrets. <laughs> <laughs> We're not saying anything. <laughs> no, um, for me, like, I've always thought, like, oh, you should always go through the front door. You should always, I mean, I've kind of taught myself to be more almost adversarial in the reporting in a way to be a little more aggressive. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but like on Twitter, for example, like there's a reason why for live tweeting all hands meetings or Q and a meetings, for example, like we get a lot of inbound from that. There's a lot of like more notoriety with that, especially when maybe you're not the New York times or not the Washington post. Right. And you need to get your name out there. Craig, I don't know if you agree with that, but. Yes, I, I agree that Ryan is very adversarial. Um, <laughs> I agree that's a great plan for Ryan. Jeez. He's, he's just insulting me all day long. Like, Facebook thinks they have it bad. Man, try working with him on a draft. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, one of the things I would say is, for a long time, I was very focused on, like, uh, investigating the on-platform behavior. And I just think people should always, if you're talking about these big social media companies, tech companies, you know, you do have to combine the internal, what are they trying to do? What are the internal discussions with what's actually happening in real life? And thinking about where those things don't line up, where they're sort of aspirational. And it's like, no, we don't profit from hate. Well, okay, you accepted ads from this white nationalist organization. And I think testing what they're saying with actual evidence is important. And then the other thing just for, you know, the the sourcing piece Learning job titles and org structures is really important and really helpful so that when you're zeroing in on story, you know who the people are that you should be trying to reach out to and talk to. Uh, that outlet makes a big effort to publish org charts for a lot of these companies. And that's a really that's a great exercise uh, for their readership that they deliver, but also you know, for journalists to understand how uh, the company or the organization that you're looking into, how it's structured and who the people are you need to talk to. I mean, that's just basic good good stuff to have under your belt as you think about who to talk to. Well, um, thank you both so much for this interview and uh, congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Thanks to the editor of this episode, Courtney Harrell. And thanks to everyone at the Polk Awards. We will be back tomorrow with another interview with a winner. See you then. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.